Father God, thank you again for, uh, for bringing us into this space where we can be a community together. Lord, we pray that now as we look at uh, your scripture that you speak to us through it, that it, words written long ago speak into our lives today because your spirit's here amongst us. Amen. <clears throat> All right. I apologize for my voice. I'm, I think I'm fighting a little cold. Um, all right, so, I, so if you were here last week, I, uh, I told you, uh, I warned you that this part was coming, that it's going to feel like uh, when your kids were little and watched the same movie over and over and over and over and over again. Um, for, for us, it was uh, Up and Frozen we watched a billion times. I probably could, could uh, quote almost the entire, entirety of both of those movies. Uh, but we're going to have to do the same thing today as we walk back through the story of Joseph. So for, the, for about a little over a month and a half now, we've been focused on the, on, on the person of Joseph in Genesis here. Uh, he has one of the longest single narratives in the whole Bible. So like where they're talking about just one person, he's, he's, he, this story um, is, is towards the top in, when it comes to length. Um, but it's important for us as we get close to wrapping up his story today that we remember where we've been in it. So... <clears throat> Um, if you missed, if you've missed anything or weren't here last week, let's just get caught up again. So uh, we've been working through the what are called the patriarchs of of, of Israel, um, and so we've looked at Abraham, we've looked at Isaac, we've looked at Jacob, uh, and then Jacob has twelve sons. If we want to throw up this chart, that kind of can kind of wrap your head around where that comes from. So Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, and then Jacob uh, with his uh, two wives and three concubines has twelve sons. Um, and so uh, we, we, those 12 sons eventually end up becoming the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, but in the story of Joseph, what we saw was that Jacob had a favoritism problem. Um, he, had, he liked one of his wives more than the other, which was an issue throughout his life. But, then he, but because of that, Rachel was his favorite wife. And because of that, uh, Jacob then, Rachel's oldest, became his favorite son. And he wasn't subtle about it. Uh, if you remember in Jacob's story or in Joseph's story, Joseph uh, is the oldest son of Rachel, not the oldest son of Jacob, uh, but the oldest son of of, of Rachel. And and as a result, Jacob treated him like the firstborn, like the bechor, right? So he was going to get double portion of the inheritance. He was treated like he was the oldest, even though he wasn't. Uh, Joseph gave him, or uh, Jacob gave Joseph uh, extra uh, stuff, right? We talked about his ornamented coat or coat of many colors. Uh, Jacob didn't make Joseph work in the fields like he'd made his brothers. He very clearly treated him with a kind of favoritism. As a result, the 12 brothers hated Joseph, as you can kind of understand why. Um, that it, Because he was so favored by his father, they were jealous, and so there was a hatred that built there. As a result, they beat him, they threw him into a cistern, and they sold him into slavery in Egypt, where Joseph goes, uh, starts as a slave in the house of somebody named Potiphar, He's then falsely accused of sexual assault and thrown into jail for a number of years. Uh, in jail, he's able to interpret Pharaoh's dreams, so he is actually then elevated to the second highest position in all of Egypt. Um, and we, look, we looked at through those, through those stories. There's a famine uh, in, in the whole region, and so as a result, uh, Jacob's brothers need to come to Egypt to get food because Egypt's the only place in the region that has any. When they get there, uh, Joseph recognizes the brothers, but the brothers don't recognize Joseph. They don't realize it's him. For the last couple weeks, we've shown that in that interaction, Joseph had, was in a power position over his brothers. He could do, or do anything to them that he desired. He could have, um, 
he could have used his power to, to, to get revenge, to get retribution, to do any of those things. And we talked about how he doesn't do that and actually instead models his power usage after, well, he doesn't, he uses his power like we see Jesus use his power, right? We saw that in Philippians when we saw that verse that Jesus, though he had, had the power of God, instead doesn't use that to his own advantage but uses it to empower other people. And so in Joseph's story, we actually see him do that. Last week, we, t- we saw this kind of game interaction that Joseph had with his power because we saw that while he's interacting with his brothers, he's wondering if they're going to treat his biological, full biological brother, same mother, Benjamin, the same way they treated him. And so Joseph uses his power in that place to, to, to see where his brothers are coming from and to see if he needs to protect Benjamin as well. We saw, though, we saw, though that, that the brothers had changed last week. We saw that, you, that uh, they didn't sell out Benjamin like they sold out Joseph. Instead, Judah steps up and actually offers his life on behalf of Benjamin. And that's where we ended last week, with Judah actually stepping up and doing the right thing. <clears throat> and so we're going to pick up the story in that spot today. And, and uh, I'm really excited to share what, what I learned out of this particular section. There's, every once in a while, um, there's, you, I read through passages that I've read through hundreds of times before, and something new comes out because of either something I've listened to or read, uh, and, and the whole story changes for me. And that happened this week, and hopefully uh, you'll be able to catch a little bit of that as well. So if, you're, if, you're gonna fo- if you want to follow along, we'll be in Genesis 44 for the majority of our time today. Um, starting at verse 27. And so this is Judah speaking in this particular section. He says, Your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One of them went away from me, and he said, He has surely been torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. If you take this one from me too, we're talking about Benjamin, and harm comes to him, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in misery. So now if the boy is not with us when I go back to your servant, to your servant, my father, and my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring, gray head, bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety, your servant, Judah talking about himself, guaranteed the boy's safety to my father, and I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, before you, my father, all of my life. Now please, let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in the place of the boy, and let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? Do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. He cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard all about it. I'm going to pause there for, for now. Like I mentioned, I, I've read through this story a number of times, and every once in a while something jumps out that's just that's mind-blowing, and, that's, that's where, um, and we've got that in this story here. Now, you may be confused and wondering why would this part of the story do that, and my hope is, if we, to see, my hope is that I can walk you through all of those things. Um, see, when we in the church tend to read the Bible a particular way, 
We tend to read the stories in order to see what truths or values or morals there are in the story, what they're trying to teach us um, through the character's life, either something to model in the case of good things, like here we've got to model our lives after this person, in the case of Joseph, that happens a lot, or in other cases, examples of what to avoid. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with reading the Bible that way. God's truth is revealed and we grow, but it's not the only way to read the Bible. Throughout this series, we've often pointed out that there are layers upon layers of truth within, within the text. We tend to read our passages with, with, with that kind of understanding, and we see some really beautiful things. Um, but in this story, we're going we're to do that again, but we're going to try to read this story through the eyes of a Jewish person. I listened to a phenomenal podcast, if we actually have a picture of it here, uh, this week that's, that was just called If Christians Read Scripture Like Jews Do, um, led by a Jewish rabbi. And the Jewish people, even though we're reading the same words, read Scripture very, very differently from us. Uh, one, especially, particularly when it comes to the first five books of the Bible. They'll read through that in depth every single year, just repeat it over and over and over and over again. And so one of the big things that a Jewish person does when they're reading through the scripture is they ask questions of things they think are weird. Why would this person do that? Why would this person do this other thing? Uh, and they and then search back through the text to see if they can get clues into their motivation or their mindset. And so the two questions that come up in this story then, when you get to this particular spot, are one... Uh, why does Joseph weep like he does? Why was this the moment that he finally breaks down? He's had interactions with his brothers a number of different times before and has been able to keep it together, but not in this one. He breaks down clearly in a way that's bigger than any other time. Like it's one that goes, the word of it spreads throughout Pharaoh's household. And the other question, which I had never considered before, and this is the one that kind of blew my mind, is why doesn't Joseph ever go look for his family? Have you ever asked yourself that question before? Joseph is, there now we know that for a portion of his life, uh, we know why, right? He's a slave. He can't. He can't leave. He's, he's bound in Potiphar's house. He can't just go. When he's in jail, obviously, he can't go looking for his family. So at the beginning of his life, we get it. Why, haven't, why don't you go look for your family? Because I can't. But, as we've said quite a bit, uh, he's now the number two in Egypt. Even, he's still, sure, he's still under the... Pharaoh's service. So even if we were to say he still can't leave, we saw last week that he has servants. He could send someone else, right? He has enough power that he could, if he says, hey, he knows where his family lives. He has, he has people underneath him, either if he went himself or sent somebody. If he wanted to find his family, he could. So why doesn't he? It's one of the questions that Jewish people ask. And actually, the answer to that question will help us under, answer, answer the first question we asked, too, and why this is the moment that he, uh, he breaks down. You see, the rabbis argue that Joseph doesn't go looking for his family because he believed a story about himself. Now, what story was that? Before we get to that, let's walk through the history of Joseph's family again. Throughout Joseph's family history, there's a pattern that arises over and over and over and over again. This is one of the things that I didn't notice until the rabbis pointed it out as well. You see, throughout Joseph's family, one member of the family, one son, was always abandoned. Think about it. We've been working through Genesis. We start with Cain. You have Cain and you have Abel. Cain is cast out, right? 
he has to leave the family and wander on his own. The next story we get about a family is the story of Noah. We have three brothers, and Ham is cursed. One son is sent out, right? Fast forward to Abraham. It's the next family that we have. We have Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael is cast out and has to leave. Fast forward to Jacob, or to, sorry, to Isaac, right? You have Jacob and Esau. Esau is cast out, is out of the family, right? Fast forward to Jacob. And that's, and then we, so from Joseph's perspective then, every single one of his, his grandparents and beyond, as he's looking in his history, one son is always cast out. You see, from Joseph's perspective, it was him. I'm the one, right? Every, in every single one of these generations, someone has been cast out, and now it's me. I'm the one that, get, that, uh, that has, to, has to leave. Joseph believes he's that person in this generation, that he believes he's been abandoned, he believes he's been cast out. By his brothers, sure, that's obvious. They're the ones that sell him into slavery. But that's not the only story that Joseph's telling himself. I would argue that he believes his father was part of it. That his father abandoned him. Just like the sons in all of those previous stories. Now, your first thought was probably like mine, going, no, that's ridiculous, right? Jo Joseph was Jacob's favorite. And we know that he was wrecked when Joseph was gone, right? We, we know that. But... It's important for us to realize as readers of the Bible that we're privy to all the information. We know uh, Jacob's response when the brothers come back with the coat. Joseph doesn't. He's in Egypt, right? He doesn't know that his father was busted up. He's probably even asking himself, why didn't dad ever come look for me? Right? Jacob had means before the famine. Jacob could have, if he knew he was in slavery, could have tried to find him and get him back. But he doesn't. And you've got to imagine over all those years, there was probably a hope inside of Joseph going, sooner or later, dad's going to find me and I'm going to get out of this situation. But then Jacob never shows up. Joseph doesn't know that he thinks he's dead. He just thinks he's been abandoned. Joseph grew, was grow, grew up hated by his brothers, mistreated by them, and Pops doesn't really do anything about it, Right? He almost seems to make it worse to egg it on by giving him these gifts and to making, clearly separating him out from his brothers. You may be thinking, okay, but that's not enough to really believe that your father's abandoned you, true. But let's look back at Joseph's last interaction with his father in Genesis 37.9. So if you remember, Joseph, the, the thing that really ticks off his brothers the first time is that Joseph has this dream where he says, you're all going to bow down to me. And the brothers don't like that at all. But then Joseph has a second dream, and in that dream, it, he actually says to his brothers, you're all going to bow down to me, and so are mom and dad. They're going to as well. Jake, Jacob, Joseph shares that dream with Jacob, and this is how it goes. Then he, being Joseph, had another dream, and he, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him. And said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down on the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. 
See, again, Joseph has two dreams. First, his brothers bow. Second, his father and mother do too. And if you look at this interaction closely, what happens? Jacob rebukes him. Like, essentially, are you serious, bro? You really think mom and I are going to bow down to you? No way, right? Jacob's last interaction with his dad, or Joseph's last interaction with his dad is a bad one. He tells his father that his father is going to bow down to him. And then his dad gets angry and and rebukes us. Now, Genesis tells us that he was still thinking about it. But again, Joseph doesn't know that. All he knows is that I just ticked off dad. What happens after that? Genesis 37, 12, right after the verses we just read. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel, who is Jacob, says to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Joseph shares his dream with Jacob. Jacob rebukes him, and the very next thing he does is send him out to go meet his brothers. Joseph goes and is immediately attacked. He's beaten. He's put in a cistern and sold by his brothers. So Joseph believes that his father was in on the plan. He had challenged his father's position, and as a result, he gone, right? Just like, all, just like one son, the whole history of his family. Also, he... We have to remember, it's easy in Joseph's story to think of Jacob as just a kindly old grandfather, right? But it's still Jacob, right? Do you remember the story of Jacob, right? The dude's shady, right? His whole life he's conning people. His whole life he's tricking people. His whole life he's working the system to his own advantage. He literally steals the birthright and the blessing from his own brother. That's Jacob, same Jacob, right? And so Joseph knows all that. He knows his family history. Dad's not kindly old grandfather. Dad is Jacob. And so if you've challenged his position, yeah, he'd sell you, maybe. Right? From Joseph's perspective, that's not an unreasonable thing to believe. Why doesn't Joseph go looking for his family? Because he believes they've all cast him out. He believes he's like Cain, like Ham, like Ishmael, like Esau. If you still aren't sure, let me show you one more thing. In Genesis 41, 51, Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, it's because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim and said, it's because God has made me fruitful in the land of suffering. Joseph has two sons. The first one he names is Manasseh, right? God has made me forget all my trouble, but don't miss this part, and all my father's household. His son's name is really forget y'all. I don't need you. I don't like you. I don't want you. I want, I'm, I want to forget you entirely. His oldest son's name is forget my family. If, we're to, if we don't believe that he had a, a grudge against them, that's proof enough, isn't it? The second son is, is named, I, even though I was sold my land of suffering, God has blessed me. Essentially, I didn't need you all anyway. I made it on my own. His son's names are direct uh, pushback on his family. Joseph doesn't go looking for his family because he doesn't want to. He was going to live without ever seeing them again. He, had no, he, he doesn't want anything to do with them, with his brothers or his father. Forget them all. See, Joseph believed a story about himself, and that story shaped at least a portion, if not much, of his life. Which leads us to the second question. Why does Joseph lose it at this particular part of the story? 
Like we already said, Joseph didn't have the, the same information that we all do. You need to imagine he's wondering, why didn't they come for me? Why didn't dad ever come for me? Let's look at verse 27 again. This is when Judah is explaining uh, why he can't keep Benjamin. Your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One of them went away from me, and I said, He's surely been torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. If you take this one from me too, and harm comes to him, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in misery. Why does Joseph lose it at this particular part? Because he loses it because this is the first time in his story that he hears that piece of information. The story he's been telling him, the story he's been telling himself for years is that dad was in on it, that my family abandoned me, that they cast me out like they have each of the sons of each of the generations before. And then when Judah is telling the story here, he realizes that the story he's been telling himself for all of those years was wrong. Dad wasn't in on it. Dad was broken over it. Dad didn't come find me because he thought I was dead. Dad actually always loved me. Just put yourself for one second into Joseph's shoes when you hear that. A story you've been telling yourself for years and years and years that your father abandoned you, that he left you, that he didn't care about you, that your whole family didn't care about you. Forget them all. And then all of a sudden, in one interaction, you realize that's not true. Dad did love me the whole time. And all of a sudden, you realize that's why Joseph weeps like that. A whole whole structure that he had built up was shown to be false. That whole defensiveness that he must have created inside, forget you all, breaks. And he's overwhelmed with that that life-giving emotion, and it causes him to weep so loudly the entirety of Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's household hears. Imagine you believed a story about your family for most of your life, feeling rejected, abandoned, and then hearing that that story you told yourself wasn't true. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried, Have everyone leave my presence? So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. He wept so loudly that the, Egypt, all the, that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But the brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. That would be terrifying, wouldn't it? Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Just another mark on Joseph's character to be able to offer that kind of forgiveness. Now we've spent a long time working through the story of Joseph and we've seen a lot of powerful truths. I think this one though is the most relatable to me. Because if you're anything like me, you tell yourself a lot of stories, don't you? We tell a lot of stories uh, about ourselves, or we tell ourselves a lot of stories in general. We tell ourselves stories about ourselves. Some of you run stories inside, stories of shame, stories of inadequacy, stories of rejection. This is who I am because of these things. This is how I'm cared about. This is how, these are the people who are with me. All of those stories we can tell ourselves about ourselves shape who we are. We also tell ourselves stories about other people, right? In, in Joseph's case, uh, dad rejected me. 
That's a story he's telling himself about another person. Actually, the idea, the concept that was popularized of the stories we tell ourselves by someone named Brene Brown. Have you heard of her before? She's fantastic. Um, she tells an amazing story. So first of all, she's the, she's the best at helping us understand the stories we tell ourselves. Um, and she actually gives the example about stories we can tell about other people too. One of her most famous stories about this idea uh, is that she's, that her and her husband are out at a, at a cottage or whatever, and in the mornings they were swimming together. They'd go out for a swim and around and back. And uh, this one particular morning, as they were getting ready to go on their swim, she tells the story a lot better than I'm going to. I'm sorry about that, but I'll, I'll try to shrink it down. They're going out on a swim, and her husband, like, when they get in the water, just takes off and starts swimming super fast, and she can't keep up, right? And so during the swim, she, start, she says, I start telling myself stories about my husband, right? She's going, stories like, hey, I'm getting a little older, and so I don't, I don't look as good, so maybe he's trying to get away from me that way, just not feeling as affectionate as he was before. Or maybe he's, maybe he's having an affair. All these different stories that start spinning through her head about what his motivation is for swimming ahead of her so fast. That keeps churning and churning and churning, and so they get back to the shore, and she's ticked off, right, because of these stories she's telling herself. And so she actually has a conversation with him and saying, hey, I need you to know this is the story I'm telling myself. What's up? And his answer is not any of those stories that she told himself. Or his answer is, last night I had a dream that we both drowned while we were swimming. And I was terrified of it. And so I had to just get back to shore uh, to make sure that, there was, that we were safe and there was somebody here for our kids. And she's like, oh my word, right? The story I told myself isn't tied to reality at all. We all tell ourselves stories about ourselves, about other people. We, all, we assume motive. We can run those stories in our heads. We tell ourselves stories about entire groups of people sometimes, which will actually be one of the focuses that we have at Common Ground tonight, right? That we can tell ourselves stories about, about black people, about Asian people, about uh, Hispanic people. It's always interesting talking to Sasha when, uh, because he, he'll talk about the difference there is not based on race but on culture. He'll talk about the against gypsies, right? That he'll say that there's this idea, the story that you'll tell yourself about gypsies in Croatia where he comes from that shape how the inter those interactions go. You see, <clears throat> the stories we tell, we, we tell ourselves stories about God, about who he is, and that shapes our faith life too. We tell ourselves stories uh, about so many different things, and the stories that we tell ourselves shape our lives and our actions. The things we believe about ourselves, the things we believe about other people, the things that we believe about groups of people, the things we believe about God, those stories that we're running in our heads shape our actions. They shaped Joseph's actions. We saw that in our story today. Look at the name of his kids. The story that he believed about himself literally is played out in the, in the names he gives his children. What we believe about ourselves and what we believe about other people affects how we treat them and how we perceive them. And so much of those are shaped by the stories we tell ourselves. In Joseph's, in Joseph's stories today, he was, willing to, the re, the, he was willing to listen to his brother's story. He was willing to hear them and engage with them. And as a result, the story he's been telling himself for years was shown to be wrong. Changing the trajectory of his life forever changing the trajectory of his entire family's lives forever, actually changing the trajectory of the nation of Israel forever, came because Joseph was willing to say, hey, this is the story that I'm telling myself real. 
and he found out it wasn't. And that's the invitation that we have this morning as well. One, to figure out what stories have we been telling ourselves. In Joseph's case, dad was in on it. It's the story he's telling himself. And then the second part then is, are we willing to listen to a different story? If Joseph, doesn't, if Joseph is convinced that the story that he was believing about himself was true, it's not hard for us to imagine him just not wanting to talk to his brothers. As soon as they walk in, he goes, nah, I'm out. Somebody else take care of these guys. I want nothing to do with them. Too much pain. There's too much stuff. If he does that, everything's different, right? We all tell ourselves stories. One, what are our stories, and are we willing to hear a different one? Because if we are, often what we'll find is that it will change the trajectory of what we're doing and how we interact with people. It's what we're going to be trying to do at Common Ground tonight, so I want to keep hitting that hard. We're going to try to open our hearts and minds to hear maybe a different story than the one we've always had, to hear the experiences of someone else to see if that changes something for us, because it'll change the way we interact with the world around us. And I actually want to close with a story that I've told here before, so I apologize, but I think it fits really well here. If we're willing to listen to those stories, it can, it, the impact can be so incredibly massive. When I ran Alpha at my previous church, um, it looked a lot different than it does here. It was in that particular space, it was filled with mostly young African-American men, um, uh, they actually, the first five came straight out of juvenile justice, so they had some rocky pasts in that space. Uh, we started with five of them and eventually got to a place where there'd be as many as 40 uh, a week uh, in that space. Um, and when I, when, when I was, <clears throat> I, like I said, I've told this story before, but when I got started, I expected Alpha to run similarly to the way it does here. Like, we're going to go through the material and, it, and I can do that well. I know how to do that. But when I was sitting there with five young uh, African-American men, um, what I realized really, really quickly is that I didn't know what I was doing, that I was out of my league, that I didn't understand uh, what the culture they came from, the backgrounds they came from, why they view the world a certain way. I didn't even have the right language to talk well. Um, and so, I, if, honestly, I've said it before, if I wasn't in charge, I would have quit because it was so uncomfortable, right? I, I, I felt completely inadequate. And I was in charge, so I couldn't. I had to keep going. And so what we did in that space is they said, hey, this, the, the, the method we're using is not working because we don't trust each other. We don't know each other. Uh, so instead, for three weeks, uh, well, let's just be honest with each other. I grew up a rich white kid. What's it like to be a poor black kid in Grand Rapids? Just that simple question. And we spent three weeks doing that, hearing stories of what it, what it was like to grow up without without food sometimes, without dad most of the time, what it was like to grow up in a completely different kind of space. Hearing that story completely reshaped the way that I view poverty or borderline poverty, completely reshaped the way that I view race and our interactions in this city, completely reshaped so many preconceptions that I didn't even realize I had because the stories that I had been telling myself I hadn't been critical of. But being willing to hear someone else's reshaped everything. It's what we're going to be doing at Common Ground tonight. Again, the next, another pitch, because I really want you all there. It's really important for us to understand the stories we tell ourselves. It's really important to also 
understand if those stories are true or not. Some of you are in a space where you're telling stories about yourself personally. I'm not good enough. I don't matter. No one cares about me. Whatever they may be, maybe they're they're stories of shame or guilt or inadequacy or rejection. If that's the story you're telling yourself this morning that's not true, throughout the pages of Scripture, the declaration over and over and over and over again is you do matter. You matter to God. And I can tell you, you if you're here with us, you matter to us as well. Some of you are telling stories to yourself about a person in your life, assuming their motives are one way or another, assuming the things that they're doing means these other things. If you haven't had a conversation with that person or haven't been willing to listen to where they're coming from, maybe this is the prompting to do that. Is the story you're telling yourself about them true? Maybe some of you here are telling yourself a story about whole groups of people, whether it's on political lines or racial lines or cultural lines, whatever it may be, maybe today's the day where you ask, is that story I've been telling myself true? Some of you are telling yourself stories about God. We've pushed on that here a lot, that so many of us in the church can, can believe that God functions like Zeus, that he's kind of like an angry, uh, judgmental being that's ready to zap you, not a loving father that desires to see you flourish. Maybe today is the day where you start to ask yourself, is this story I've been telling myself about God true? The stories that we tell ourselves will shape our actions. They'll shape our interactions. They'll shape what we believe about ourselves and how they have a direct uh, correlation to how we can flourish in this world. God is the God of truth. He desires us to see this. He desires the stories we tell ourselves to be true. So my challenge to all of you today is that. What stories are you telling yourself and are they true? And if they're not, are you willing to listen to someone with a different story? If we do that as a community, if we do that tonight in common ground, I think the, traject- the things that we can accomplish are limitless because God can work through us by giving us true stories. We pray with me? Father God, we just want to come before you today and, ha- and ask for your wisdom, for your eyes to help us to see ourselves uh, through your eyes so that we can see the stories that we tell ourselves. God, we, we all have so many different stories that we tell ourselves about who we are, who people around us are, who you are. God, we pray that we, ha- that we have wisdom to see which ones are true, which ones might not be true. And then please, we pray that you give us ears to hear other people's stories humbly so that they might shape our own. Amen.